0: Well, good morning. If you'd open your Bibles once again to Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. I want to thank Larry for filling in for me last week. Um, we had a great time with with family and and some friends, I got to go to a school reunion. Uh, 35 years for some of you that seems like not very long for others. You're like 35 years. Holy cow! Um, and uh, yeah, I got to reconnect with some some people from from high school. Uh, it was really. I wasn't sure how people would respond. Um, finding out I I'm a pastor, I was a little bit like, ah, but uh, it was really neat. There were a couple couple um, really neat conversations I was able to have with people who are uh, going through some things. And once they found out I was a pastor, they were like wait, waiting for me to be alone so they could come and, and talk to me. And uh, it was really uh, a blessing uh, to be able to reconnect and, and to share a little bit of, of God with them and um, hopefully be an encouragement. So uh, thank you for, for those of uh, you who knew I was going to that and prayed prayed for for us. Um, so uh, well, let me go ahead and And pray, and then we're going to jump into this this text. Our gracious Father, we are thanking you today for your presence in our midst. Thank you for the love that you have for us. For this reminder this morning of why Jesus had to come. God, I pray that as we remind ourselves of of this reality, man's problem, that we would have a better understanding of Christmas. We would have a better understanding of why we celebrate, and that it will will help us to celebrate more deeply, more meaningfully. Uh, Father, I confess to you that because this this happens every year, and uh, Lord, it's so easy to get... Just get into the, the tradition, doing things the same way every year. And, and Lord, I pray that this year might be different for us. As we celebrate, that we will ponder these truths that are so important for us to understand. We ask for your Holy Spirit to, to minister to us this morning. Lord, it's in Christ's name we pray. Several years ago, I came across this, this story. Um, it happened back in, in 1997, in, in the month of December. A couple went out to cut down their own Christmas tree. And uh, upon returning home, the husband was covered in, in pine tar. And so he, he went up to take a shower while his wife began to decorate the tree. In the middle of the husband's shower... He hears his wife uh, a blood-curdling scream, right? So he jumps out of the shower, runs down with nothing but suds on him. She pointed to the floor and said, a snake! Here a big black snake had come out from the tree and had slithered under the sofa. So the husband, quickly doing his manly duty, gets down on his hands and knees and crawls under the coffee table to peek under the under the sofa. Meanwhile, the wife runs outside to get help from their golden retriever, (laughs) lets him out of his cage. He runs into the house through the open door to find his master on all fours on the floor and does what every dog does when they meet someone, with a very cold nose, comes up and gets him right in the behind well he's already on high alert because he's expecting a snake and so when this happens he jumps back hits his head on the coffee table and faints and now he's unconscious and right then his wife walks in the door and sees her husband laying on the floor unconscious assuming I got bit by the snake she calls 911 (laughs) and so they get there quickly and as they're Dressing the man and uh, getting him on the gurney, he comes to. And then he tells them what actually happened. And they were laughing so hard, they didn't notice the snake come out from underneath the couch. And so as they were beginning to carry him out the door, the one paramedic sees the snake, jumps back, drops the gurney, and the man falls and breaks his wrist. And that is why I don't have a real tree. (laughs) We always had. artificial tree well this morning we want to take a look at another story about a serpent only one that's not that funny right and one that has far greater consequences than simply a broken wrist. see before we can truly celebrate Christmas we've got to understand why Christ had to come we need to understand what was it that prompted God to send his one and only son into this world to take on human flesh. And this takes us all the way back to the beginning here in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. One commentator said this about chapter 3. It is hardly too much to say that this chapter is the pivot of all, of all the bible for if we take it away the rest of scripture becomes meaningless with the exception of the fact of creation we have here the record of the most important and far reaching event in the world's history the entrance of sin and the rest of the bible not only lays out how that sin progressed through mankind but how God was revealing himself and was going to prepare was preparing the way in the fullness of time to send forth the redeemer. And so we've got to take a look at the beginning here and how this all started. And as uh, Jeff already read for us here in Genesis 2 and chapter 3, I'm not going to read it again, but we want to take a look at what is going on here. And there are f- four basic areas I want to focus upon. The first is the command in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. We basically have God giving Adam the command as he put him into the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. And he says to him, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. It's pretty simple, right? Here's what you can do. Here's what you cannot do. They were permitted to eat freely. Any tree. All the trees in the garden. Everything that is here is at your access. You would freely eat of it except for one, right? They were forbidden to eat from one tree and one tree only. It's pretty simple. Isn't it true that we oftentimes focus on the the command of the thing you're not allowed to do and not on all that you're allowed to do, of any tree? All that is here is yours to freely eat from except for this one. God does not tell them the reason why. All he tells them is, what will happen if you eat of it? You shall surely die. Because God is God, he did not owe them an explanation as to why they shouldn't eat. Nor does he owe us An explanation as to why we, there are things we should not participate in or should not partake of. The command is simple. You may freely eat. You may not eat this one. And if you do, surely you will die. Then we come to the fall, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. <coughs> a serpent. Now, again, we're not told a lot of things. We really have questions about, right? Like, was it unusual for an animal to talk? <laughs> I don't know. We don't know how long, right? It was from the creation to chapter three. That doesn't seem like there was a ton of time here. So it's possible, you know, Eve was was created at the end of chapter 2. Maybe she hadn't been exposed to too many animals at this point. Um, Maybe she didn't know animals couldn't talk. Maybe they did before the fall. Again, we don't know any of these things. The text doesn't tell us. All it tells us is that the serpent, being the craftiest of all the beasts in the field, began to speak to the woman, And said, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. You see what he does? Yeah, he's twisting God's word. He's questioning what God said. Indeed has God said. Well, the woman, she she learned from her husband because she wasn't there when the command was originally given in chapter 2. But he had to have told her. So she says, to the serpent, from the trees, fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, obviously referring to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. You see what Eve does? Now, did she get it right from Adam? We don't know. We have to assume she did, but Maybe she didn't, but somehow, from the time God gave the command to Adam to the time Eve heard it from Adam, somehow something got messed up because God never said, you cannot touch it. He just said, you can't eat from it. She added to what God had said. She changed what God had said. She confused was confused about the command. And the serpent said to the woman, Surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is how the enemy works. He does the same things. He questions God's Word. He contradicts God's Word. You're not going to die. And he suggests something about God's character that isn't true. Right? Indeed has God said this. If we don't know what God has said, we can be easily deceived. Then he clearly contradicts. You go back to chapter 2, verse 17. God said, you surely shall not die. The serpent said, surely you shall not die. I don't think it's a coincidence that he uses the same word. Surely, this isn't isn't true. This is ridiculous. For God knows that if you eat of it, you're going to be like him. In other words, you don't need God if if you're like him. You see, the temptation can be very subtle. Very subtle. And the purpose of create, of temptation is to create doubt in the mind of, of, of them, and in, and in our case, in our minds, to doubt our understanding of the Word of God and our trust in the goodness of God. If the enemy can get us to doubt what God has said... <laughs> then we don't know whether or not God has really commanded this or commanded that. If he can get us to doubt the character of God, then we wonder, well, even if God said it, is that the right thing for me? Because after all, we're smart people. We've, We've lived some time on this earth. We've experienced things. We know what's good and what's not good. And so... The enemy's subtle um, temptation, it seems to me, as you look through school, you see he's always questioning the Word of God. He's contradicting the Word of God, and he's suggesting things about God that aren't true. In our, in our small groups tonight, if you, if you have a small group tonight, uh, the question is to compare. The, the temptation here with the temptation in the wilderness of Jesus, uh, well, where the, the, uh, the enemy comes there and, and does. You see this very similar things. He is desiring to create doubt. Once he gets us to begin to doubt, then we're vulnerable. And oftentimes, you know, the, we're not always confident in what the Word of God says. That's why we need to be in the Word continually. You know, I like Dale Tackett in the um, Truth Project. He says, do you really believe that what you believe is really real? Do we really believe that what we read here is the truth? That's what's being questioned. First of all, did God really say that? (laughs) God didn't really mean that. God knows something he's trying to keep from you. And if you do that, you won't need him anymore. And we see not only his temptation can be very subtle, but temptation can be very successful. And it was for Eve. When you begin to look at this text a little deeper, you realize that from the command to what she says, there are a couple things that happen. In verse 2, she seems to downplay the privilege. God said, of any tree you may freely eat. What's she saying? Well, we're allowed to eat. We're allowed to eat from the trees. She does not seem to really grasp God's, God's, uh, privi- the privilege that God has given them. All the things that they're access. Yeah, well, we're allowed to treat, eat, eat. And then she uh, confuses the command, right? She's like, well, yeah, we're not allowed to eat or touch it. So, you know, and, and I think the en- enemy, he's looking for this. Does he, he wants to know, do you really know what God has said? And when he sees that we don't know, he's going to capitalize on it. And he's got her vulnerable because she, he realizes she does not know what God actually said. And so he says, God is holding out on you. You're not going to In fact, what she says here is in verse uh, 3, right from the tree in the middle of the garden, you may shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. Many commentators say that she downplays the consequence here. God says you will surely die. And it's almost like she's saying, oh, and if we eat it, we might die. There's a downplaying, if you will, and underestimating the consequence of disobedience. She was deceived, and when she looked at the tree and saw that it was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that it had it was desirable to make one wise, she said, "Well, this has everything that I'm looking for." So she took it and she ate it, and then. She gave to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. She was deceived, took and ate. She gave it to Adam, who was not deceived. See, the serpent approached the woman, not the man. Possibly because through his observation, right, he saw God commanded the man. The man shared it with the woman. Maybe the woman's more vulnerable because she didn't hear directly from God. Think about that. If everything you know about the Word of God and what God has said, you hear from someone like me standing in a pulpit and not reading it for yourself. It's much easier to be confused and deceived because you say, well, maybe he didn't say it right. Maybe he was not understanding it correctly. I don't know where it is. Somewhere because... Pastor Jeff said it because some other, you know, preacher or some teacher said it. so. But then when you're really pushed, you don't know, did God really say this? We must be in the Word of God for ourselves. Adam wasn't deceived. He knew what he was doing. He was right there Beside her while the serpent was talking with her. That's what the text seemed to indicate, right? He was with her. And yet, instead of protecting her from the serpent, he joined her in her sin. This is a problem that men have. We can easily shirk our God-given responsibility to lead, to take responsibility. And we abdicate that to our wives if we're married. And then we follow. This is what got mankind into trouble from the beginning. And And I'm not saying anything negative about women Uh, Hopefully, uh, you hear me saying this is man's primary responsibility. God designed it that way. But he took from her and he ate. And as a result, the sin nature was passed down from them to all who were born in this world, save one. And that is the one whose birth we celebrate this time of year. As sin was passed down, as the uh, verse in your, in your uh, bulletin says, Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. Temptation can be very successful, especially when we don't know what God's Word says when we don't know who God is we can be easily manipulated by the enemy about what God actually has said and who God actually is. Well then we come to the consequences. and We see that what they did initially after their eyes were opened and you, you notice the enemy didn't Completely lie to them. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open. What happened when they ate it? Both of their eyes were opened. They knew good and evil, just as he said. But that wasn't a good thing. And this is how sin works. It gives every appearance of being a good thing. And, you know, we, again, we live in a world where God says, Thou shalt not, and our culture says, Absolutely thou shalt. Because this thing will make you happy. And after all, what's the most important thing? Being happy. So therefore, you can disregard those ancient, ancient myths from the past and just embrace what is good, best for you. What will make you happy? And then when you do, you find out it didn't make you happy. It made you feel guilty. Because you are. Because your eyes were open to the reality. And so what did they do? They tried to cover themselves up. So leaves together to make a loin covering because for the first time they realized they were naked. And now they were ashamed. Because prior to chapter three, in verse twenty-five, we see the man and his wife were both naked and were unashamed until they ate from the forbidden fruit—a loss of innocence. You know, I, I remember thinking back as a parent when your kids are little. You know, you just you love their 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 innocence their purity. you know Not that they're not sinners, they are, but there's just so much about them. They just look at life through, through innocent eyes. They trust. They just have all that. And then at some point in their growing up, their eyes are open. And they realize not everybody can be trusted. Sometimes people do bad things. And, and, and their, their innocence is lost. It's part of living in a fallen world. Not that we want to keep them there. But it's a sad thing to see that. And so there was shame that they experienced. And then we see God coming into the garden as it would appear he would do periodically or regularly to come and fellowship with his new creatures. And they hid themselves. And God asked the question, where are you? And the man said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid myself. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from a tree which I commanded you not to eat? Do you realize God doesn't ask questions to gain information? He already knows. He asked questions to reveal truth. Have you eaten? God knew they ate. He wanted them to admit it. Well, after trying to hide, they couldn't do that. Trying to cover themselves with loin cover, or with uh, fig leaves. What did they turn to next? The brain game. Well, God, it is the woman you gave me. It's her fault. She gave me from the tree and then I ate. And so he looked at Eve, he looked at the woman and she said, it was the serpent. He gave it to me or he he deceived me and I ate. It's always someone else's fault. See, there are different consequences to our sin, one of which is relational consequences. The relationship between God and man, the vertical relationship, is is broken by sin. God would come into the garden and fellowship freely with Adam and his new wife until sin entered the picture. And now there was a, a break in the relationship. Guilt, shame now entered into that relationship. There's also now a problem between the man and the wife and and the woman. (laughs) It's her fault. No, it's his fault. It's this fault. Now there's a problem relationally between them. And this is what God does. I'm sorry, this is what sin does. In our lives, when we give into it, it it causes us to have broken relationships with God and with one another. There's blame. There's animosity. Now, there's problems. There are relational consequences. There are also physical consequences, and God enumerates them in verses 14 through uh, 19. First, he looks at the serpent, and he says, "Cursed." Because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. And your belly you shall go, and in dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Most commentators believe that verse 14 is a direct curse on the animal, the serpent himself, who was used by Satan to communicate um, this deception. Some believe that possibly the serpent had arms and legs, crawled like a lizard, and now was cursed, and now it slithers on the ground. Again, we're not told those details. We have to assume from what we see here. But there was some kind of curse upon the creation, upon the the animal. And then verse 15 is directed toward the evil presence that was occupying the serpent, the enemy himself. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The first indication of God's, plan of redemption that he would enact. He basically says, there, were, there is going to be a time when through her seed I will raise up one who will destroy you. You're going to fight against him, but he will, he will win. He will bruise you on the head. You will only bruise him on the heel. And then he turns to the woman. He says, I will greatly multiply your, child, your pain and childbirth in praying you shall bring forth children. Ladies, you can all thank Eve when you get there. Right? Yeah, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. There's some debate among you know, commentaries on exactly what's being said here. I think, as I've looked at all this and looked at what they say, I think what is going on here, is, as a result of the fall, he's saying you, wife, will desire to control your husband. And yet he will rule over you. He will be master over you is what that means. The result of the fall is this, this desire to usurp authority within the relationship by the woman. And there is this, this tendency for men to exercise their, maybe their strength or their domination, their mastery, into to control and rule over their wife. This is what happens when we operate in the flesh. But how wonderful when we come to the New Testament and we see the Apostle Paul giving instructions to the church about the husband-wife relationship in Ephesians 5, and he says to the husband, you are the head, but you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. How did Christ exercise his headship? By loving servant leadership, by giving his life for her. Had Adam done that from the beginning and stood up for her, Things would have been different here. Paul says, this is how this thing is to be redeemed until Christ calls us home. Husbands, you are to exercise your leadership as a loving leader to to sacrifice and serve your wife. Not as a domineering tyrant. That's the fall. This is redemption. And he says, wives, You are to willingly bring yourself under the authority of your husband. Submit to his leadership over you. As unto Christ. Just as you bring yourself under the authority of Jesus Christ as as a believer in him, you are to walk under that in in your marriage. Not trying to control but bring yourself under that. Men, we have the responsibility to initiate this. If we are truly loving our wife with that, the way we, we, uh, Christ loved the church, it will be a whole lot easier for her to bring herself under that. If we're not, she's probably going to react in wanting to maintain control. It's the way it is in, the, in this fallen place. And isn't it interesting how, when we are in our flesh, how we revert to the wrong things, right? Men will become passive, and women will become controlling in our flesh. Now, often it probably comes out of, you know, a, a desire for, to, to, to get things done, to do the right thing, to whatever, But we need to understand how the fall affected things and what redemption is to look like in our lives. Then to Adam, he says, Adam, because you listened to your wife. Now that's not to say we should never listen to our wives. Please understand me. (laughs) Because you listened to her in this thing, right? And you've eaten from a tree about which I commanded you. Again, Adam was responsible. He's the one God commanded. But because you listen to your wife instead of me, the ground is cursed. And it's your job to cultivate the ground. And guess what? It's going to now be hard work. All the days of your life, it will grow thorns and thistles. You're going to struggle to plant and to harvest Until the day you return to the ground from where you've come. It looks like a little little reminder of God to say, Adam, you remember? You came from the dust. That's what you are. Until I breathed life into you, until I gave you life, you were a clod of dirt. You're going to return there. So these are the consequences. Right? There are physical consequences. They come. And then there are, thirdly, spiritual consequences. We see that God had to cover them properly after he named her Eve because she was the mother of all the living. We see in verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. This is the first time we see a picture of a blood sacrifice. Because the fig leaves weren't sufficient. Blood had to be shed. And so there was this spiritual consequence uh, that blood had to be the consequence of sin. And he he then kicked them out of the garden. There was separation. Separation from God. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 59, verse 2. Verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. Neither is his ear so dull it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sin separates us from God, and that's why they were kicked out of the garden. Relationship with God was broken. And now they would eventually die physically, but that separation was also a spiritual separation. But God made provision, right? Lastly, the provision. As I mentioned, the covering of the skin from the animal whose blood was shed. God provides the covering for guilt. Just as Jesus' blood in the fullness of time was shed as a sufficient covering for us. It's not the blood of bulls and goats that covers us. It's it's the sacrifice of Christ. And as he alluded to when he was cursing the serpent, is that the seed of the woman, which is Jesus, will come in the fullness of time. God provides the covering. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Because Jesus came. And then the other part of this, which, almost, which seems negative, but it really is a gift from God, and that is that God prevents the extension of life by kicking them out of the garden and not permitting them to eat from a tree of, of uh, life. It says, Behold, verse 22, the man has become like us, right, knowing good and evil. And now lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever in this sinful state. He kicked them out of the garden and he put a guard, the cherubim there with a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. Man cannot find um, the, the way to eternal life on his own, on her own. God prevents it from happening. You cannot obtain eternal life apart from God's one and only way, which is through the seed of the woman. Through the one who was born in Bethlehem. God's gracious way of salvation through the blood that was shed on the cross at Calvary. So what's the application? Number one. We must know the word of God. And trust the goodness of God. We must be in the word. Now. Now. You know, it's easy for us to say, well, you know, I don't, I don't know much about it, and it's a hopeless cause. I'll never know it all, so therefore, why try? We're never going to know it all. You can have multiple degrees in theology and, and, the, and, and from seminary and, and all this and still not fully grasp. This is the Word of God. But we need to know what it says, so we need to be reading it consistently. Being in it and being under it. right? Being being under the teaching and the, the preaching of God's Word. But we need to be in it ourselves so we know what God has said and what God has not said. And we also need to trust in the goodness of God. We need to know who God is and believe it. Because again, the world will deceive. The world is, is continually trying to get us off track. I, I, lo- I love this, you know, one of the, the, the great um, uh, forefathers of our country, Benjamin Franklin. Um, he loved to argue. Occasionally he would find himself overwhelmed by the arguments of his learned friends and at such times he would often say, well, give me a day to think about it because I know I'm right. And so then he would go to his print shop, set up some type in the style of the Bible, express his position and argument in biblical language. He would then return the next day to his opponents and proclaim loudly, whatever you may think, you cannot get away from the fact that the Holy Scripture supports my argument. As it says in the, bo- in the book of John, and then he would quote his quote. And it says the ruse worked every time. Why? because they didn't know what the Word of God said. This is the problem we have. The enemy knows the Bible better than we do. He can manipulate it, misquote it, and so if we don't know God's Word, and if we're not learning to know God's Word, we are susceptible. We can begin to doubt, and when we get to begin to doubt, and He really can have His way. So we need to know the Word of God, and we need to trust the goodness of God. Believe that God, when God says, Thou shalt not, it is for my good, not for my harm. And then secondly, we must know the reality of sin. And trust the provision for sin. We must know the reality of sin. Sin is disobedience to God. Whether it's driven by a lack of knowledge of the word or not, it is disobedience. One commentator said the root of sin should be understood. The foundation of all sin lies in man's desire of self-assertion and his determination to be independent of God. Adam and Eve chafed under the restriction laid upon them by the command of God. And it was in opposition to this that they asserted themselves and thereby fell. Man does not like to be dependent upon another, subject to commands upon another, and subject to commands from without. He desires to go his own way, to be his own master, and as a consequence, he sins and becomes lord of himself, that heritage of woe. The responsibility of sin needs constraint. I'm sorry, this responsibility of sin needs constant emphasis. The possibility of sin is involved in a fact of personality. Unless man was to be an automaton with no opportunity for character, there must be granted the possibility of sin. It is at this point we realize the solemn fact of personal accountability. Whatever may be true of environment and heredity, never can, they can never blot out the distinction between right and wrong or rob man of his responsibility. We will stand before God one day and give an account for our lives. Praise God, we are covered by the blood of Jesus. We must know what my sin has brought about It has brought about a separation between me and God. But God provided a way for that chasm to be uh, uh, bridged, for that separation to be reconciled. And it's through the one whose birth we celebrate, who came to this world, became a man and died on the cross, shedding his blood for our sin, rose again to prove his victory. And so we must trust in God's provision for sin. We will not do that until we understand that my sin has brought separation. My sin, not Adam and Eve's. They gave me a sin nature, but I have operated in that. I am guilty. You are guilty before God. And just as Adam and Eve had to come to the place after they tried to hide, after they tried to push it off on someone else, they had to say, I ate. They had to admit it. You and I have to admit our sin before God so that we can receive His provision. That's true of us globally, if you will, of the big picture I must come to that place before I can put my trust in Jesus Christ for my salvation. But it's also true of us day after day of our lives when we, when we choose to walk in a particular situation in disobedience. Maybe it's because we were deceived. Maybe it's because we intentionally and deliberately disobeyed as Adam did. Either way, when we know, when our eyes are open to the reality that I have sinned against God... I cannot hide, I cannot blame someone else. I must admit it. I am guilty. I ate, I did that, and it is wrong. And when we come before God with a confessive heart, God opens up the floodgates. Redemption is ours already. Forgiveness is already provided through Jesus Christ. It's ours to take. Our shame, our guilt is And the sooner we come to grips with that, the sooner we will be able to get back on our feet and begin walking in right fellowship with God again. How many times can you look back in your life and you you wasted time because you, you either didn't confess it or you wanted to wallow in your sorrow and your guilt and your shame instead of bringing it before the one who could do something. Well, this is why we celebrate Christmas. Because we're guilty. And we can't do anything about it. But God sent forth His Son born into this world so that through Him we might be forgiven, set free. We might enjoy a relationship with God. A relationship which we will have for all of eternity in His presence. When this life is over, we are in Heaven with Him. That's why we celebrate with joy. Not because the baby's cute, but because the baby is the Savior of mankind. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank You for reminding us today of our our great problem. We are sinners in need of a Savior. Thank you for sending Jesus to this world. He came in vulnerability as a baby. He took on human flesh. He could become like us. So that He could take our sin upon Himself and die in our place. That through Him we might have life, forgiveness, full and free, life abundant and eternal. And God, as we, as we journey on our way toward home, we will continue to be faced with temptation. The enemy is the craftiest. and He knows how to subtly tempt. And he's very good at it. Lord, help us to know that we must, we must know the Word of God and we must trust your goodness. We must understand the reality of sin and trust in your provision. And God as we hold on to these truths and apply them, we'll be better equipped to stand against temptation. Certainly, we will be better equipped when we give in to come before you and be restored. God we ask that as we enter into this celebration season, and it will truly be a different Christmas, a a more meaningful time of worshiping you as we contemplate the reality of who we are apart from Christ and why you came to save us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.